everyone, and welcome to another action-packed edition of The Analysts. I'm Joni Balter, KCTS 9 political analyst, here today with C.R. Douglas, political analyst for Q13. Hey, C.R. Hello, hello. So we analysts, we have much to talk about today on our last podcast of 2016, including... Are you ready for 2017? It seems like a wow. logical question. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> While you were celebrating Christmas, our incoming president was tweeting random, unfiltered thoughts about boosting our nuclear capabilities. Merry Christmas to you, too. <laughs> Locally, increasing pressure on Seattle and King County to scrap plans for a $200 million juvenile jail. Feisty Republican state senator Pam Roach says goodbye to Olympia after 26 years of service. And good or bad, Seattle has the hottest housing market in the nation. And finally, who are the biggest winners and losers of 2016? And what do these analysts here predict in politics for the coming year? So let me start, CR, by asking, what was your response to the Trump tweets, the holiday tweets, no less, about nukes? I myself had this sense of ugh, foreboding, like, oh, my God, what do we do about this guy? It's crazy enough to tweet away in a presidential campaign, maddening and strange as that might have been. But to tweet nuclear policy, rambling, mildly incoherent, um, how are we going to make it through these four years? You know, not everybody gets nuance. Not everybody gets the idea that the president-elect cannot separate himself from his Twitter account or absorb the magnitude of the impact of these kinds of comments. You know, most presidents, they spend their time trying to reduce nuclear stockpiles, and most want to re reassure the citizenry, you know, don't worry, we adults, we big thinkers, we have this covered. And he is just the opposite. Yeah, it was certainly disturbing. You know, it's one thing to tweet about a domestic policy and, you know, what you might do to tax rates, that kind of thing. But when you start when you start tweeting about nukes, it is it is worrisome. These are literally life and death uh, you know, weapons we're talking about. Here is the exact tweet. He said, the United States must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capability until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. And just a day later, he followed up in an interview by saying, yes, let it be an arms race. So an arms race, wow. I mean, that certainly wasn't a mandate from the election. Um, it's odd because... It comes basically a day after Putin made some comments about modernizing Russia's nuclear arsenal and nuclear capacity. And so it seems like this wasn't just out of the blue from Trump. It, 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 it had it a context. Must, it had a must context. have been some kind of response to Putin, which is weird because he's supposedly in a bromance with, with Putin, right? They're supposedly going to yeah, get but, along great. And... But how do bromances go? <laughs> yeah. They're up, they're down. <laughs> they're... You know, one thing you 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 supposedly could count on with the Trump presidency was better relationships with Ru better relationship with Russia. And now he's talking about this 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 potential arms race uh, with Russia, which is which is just the opposite uh, of a bromance. As you say, if this is true and does represent a, a real policy he wants to push, it is a big departure from the last basically 30 years of U.S. policy, U.S.-Russia policy, which has been to reduce the, the stockpile of nuclear weapons, arms control agreements, start treaties, 
all the rest, this would change that. And we reignite an arms race uh, if he's really serious. So I know the citizens who voted for Trump outside our Seattle or Washington state bubble love this sort of unfiltered in your face style. But on nukes, uh, it is tough not to wish that he said some of this nuclear stuff before the election. If you think back to the words that we mostly heard about nuclear everything, uh, it was actually coming from his opponent, Hillary Clinton, for, for example, in the debate. Remember that great line? A man you can provoke with a tweet should not have his hands anywhere near the nuclear codes. Now you have a man who cannot control his appetite, it's huge, for tweets, awfully close to the nuclear codes. This keeps feeling like a really bad movie. Yeah, I would say he's he's a month away from the nuclear codes. <laughs> awfully close is right. You know, one real danger here is that is that this could jeopardize uh, basically the post-war, certainly the last 30 or 40 years of, of nuclear policy. You know, there's a non-proliferation treaty that's been signed by 191 countries. And, and the deal with that treaty is that the major nuclear powers of the world, U.S., Russia, China, France, England, would agree not to spread nuclear technology, not to sell it, not to give it away, and that they would agree to not to actually continue to reduce their arsenals. So that so that the benefit of a of a signatory, a country to sign this thing and kind of take them out of the nuclear capacity uh, game is that is that they would get the big nuclear powers to basically promise to not spread the technology and reduce their arsenal. So if he's talking about actually kind of reigniting an arms race and 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 increasing the nuclear arsenal of the United States, and if Russia does the same, well, then we're kind of blowing up the whole nuclear nonproliferation treaty. And people forget how successful that's been. I mean, since 1970, when that treaty was was started, the thought was that in 10, 20 years, you would have a couple dozen, three dozen, maybe four dozen nuclear powers, nuclear weapons powers. Right now, they're about ten. I mean, we've kept it to a to a to a real minimum, and part of that has been that non-proliferation treaty, and a new arms race could blow that deal up. Yes, indeed. So onward to a more local topic. Um, how does this even happen? It seems that the voter-approved plan for a new county juvenile jail is facing some big headwinds all of a sudden here at the end of 2016. What do you make of this? And do the folks who want to fight this now, sort of after the fact, do they have a chance? Well, these are the same folks, of course, that just a few months ago were fighting against another high-priced law enforcement facility. That was that $160 million North Seattle precinct. Uh, they won that fight. I mean, that project has been put on hold for now. I think the attempt to put the jail on hold or scrap it all together is going to be tougher for them. I mean, first, this was a voter-approved measure, this jail, approved by 55% in 2012. It's taken a, a, a several years for it to kind of come online. But it's not some bureaucratically designed, you know, facility like that North Precinct was. No one voted on that. It's just, you know, someone in the department of whoever. Like maybe the trolleys, even, if yeah. you think about it, they weren't voter approved. So it's harder to reverse and throw out a voter approved project. Second, it's it's harder to argue that 
that we shouldn't have a jail than we, that we shouldn't have a, a north precinct again going to this analogy about whether they're going to succeed like they did with that seattle uh facility you know a, a police precinct uh police aren't super popular right now right and the idea of giving them a brand gold-plated home uh you know that doesn't wash as well as 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 the idea that we need a new jail and finally there's a good case to be made that this jail is more compassionate than the existing facility not only is the existing facility dilapidated but it doesn't have the services the family support centers the court deferral programs i mean this new facility is meant to be a holistic thing and it's 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 a harder thing to argue against than just a police precinct so this is maybe a first for me but um i agree with dan savage of the stranger on this i don't remember agreeing with him that often i agree with congratulations we'll let him know thank you for that and give him a (laughs) give him a quick call and I'm also with King County Executive Dow Constantine on this. So uh, Seattle City Councilman Mike O'Brien, it, as you just said, can make the case that perhaps we don't need a, a new North Precinct. But that is completely different. This is not the same kind of routine as the youth jail. As you said, the youth jail that we have right now is all but uninhabitable. It's a mess. It needs to be replaced. And yes, you know, I you know I visited I, it, and I agree. I yeah. mean, the water—you turn on water in these old, like, abandoned wings, and it's brown, and it's—it's it's just you know. a mess there. Um, but of course, we should pursue all these other things, like reduced detention, preventative steps, restorative justice, greater emphasis on improving the lives of some of the young people, you know, education, social services, so that we can, in fact, reduce uh, the school-to-prison pipeline. Nobody's in favor of that very much. But do remember, and this brings in Dan Savage, that um, some young people do commit pretty awful crimes, and there's no other option for them but youth jail. Uh, I also just can't get my brain around um, arguing after the fact that the detention center doesn't need um, to be built. You know, there are some some family places that would be uh, better in the new facility. It's also supposed to be more like a community center, you know, a better place. So I, I don't get bringing this up so much after the fact. Well, you know, it has been pointed out by supporters, Dow Constantine and others, that only a quarter of this facility is actually jail. I mean, the rest, as you, as you say, and we've mentioned, is devoted to other things, services, you know, courts, family, um, you know, family support centers, all that that kind of thing. The the number of beds is is greatly reduced from what we've had. I mean, there is a success story out there about how well this county has done at actually reducing the youth jail population. I mean, you get the feeling that literally nobody is trying to say, let's increase the youth jail population. Everybody seems to be on the same page, but there's sort of this difference in reality, like you know, oh, we can reduce it if we have this building or not have the building. That'll help us, you know, change the policies that we're implementing on this. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that this jail held like, you know, 200 200 kids in a given day. It's now down to about 50 kids in a given day. I mean, they have done very good things with alternative sentencing, home detention, court diversion programs. You know, a lot of kids are in the jail because they didn't go to school or they missed a court date. I mean, they're not felons, you know, but, 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 uh, so alternative programs. Big life between truancy 
and sort of the petty crimes that come up. Uh, exactly. Now, clearly, as you say, some I mean, you can't get this to zero. I think it's unrealistic because there are yeah. kids. I mean, there are young kids that are committing murders. There are young kids that are committing, you know, felony rapes. There are young kids that are committing felony drug drug dealing, all the rest. You talked about it being more like a community center. I want to read something. The spokesman for the county executive, this is reported by The Stranger, but she said, and this is a description of the new facility, get this, about 25% of the project is dedicated to a juvenile detention center that cuts the county's juvenile detention bed count in half while, while adding space, get this, for a King County Library site, a spiritual center, mental health services, and an activity room dedicated to creative writing, yoga, improv performance training, and mentoring programs. It's also designed flexibly so that the juvenile detention population continues to decline. More bed halls can be converted into non-detention program space, unquote. Creative writing rooms, yoga, improv. I'm wow. I'm heavily into the yoga. <laughs> <laughs> this is a community center. You know, this is the kind of thing you would think the block, the bunker people, that's what this sort of protest group has been called, would love this. They would love money to be used for yoga and spiritual centers. And that's, you know, apparently a lot of what the site is going to be for. So uh, one brief uh, subject we should get to here because uh, Seattle keeps winning this contest that maybe it doesn't want to win. It's about the housing market. You know this. Second month in a row, Seattle's housing market most sizzling in the country. Uh, so for the second straight month, the headlines say the Seattle area topped the nation in home price growth, up almost 11% October above October a year ago. How on earth does this help our affordable housing problem? Well, it doesn't. It makes it tougher. And it's it's reflected not just in housing costs, but in rents. You know, here are some figures. The average Seattle house is about $625,000. And the average rent, I couldn't believe this, is $3,100. Average Seattle it rent. It higher than, you know, some of the other bigger cities that we all it's, always thought we were not going to become yeah, like. Yeah, like San Francisco. I mean, this or, is... Or this even is, D.C. or... I don't yeah, know the This is This is kind of nosebleed levels. I'm starting to hear the stories, perhaps you are, that kind of harken back to 2006, 2007, where you're hearing, oh, they got $100,000 over the asking price and it was sold in two days. Oh, and... there are bidding wars for all this, yeah. all the properties that go up because of limited supply. So it's 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 disturbing and it's it's particularly tough for, you know, young newcomers uh, who 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 want to settle here and, and, and it's just, it's, it's if they are settling here and they are and they are forking it out, um, it's a big chunk of their it's a big chunk of their income, and so a lot of their discretionary money isn't there. One thing that could be going on, I mean, why we are the hottest? Why is Seattle hottest? Why isn't it New York? Why isn't it San Francisco? Well, there is some theory that the that British Columbia has has inadvertently affected our market. They imposed a tax earlier this year, fifteen percent tax. Really on, interesting. On yes. foreign yes. investment. In housing and real estate, so there's a lot of Chinese investment, a lot of overseas investment that was coming into Victoria or coming into Vancouver um, and other places in British Columbia that was driving up their costs. That tax halted that that foreign investment pretty pretty dramatically. And so the theory is a lot of it's come down here and put pressure on our market. We don't have that kind of tax. In fact, it'd probably be unconstitutional in the United States. It'd probably be unconstitutional, but you can see that one action a, a couple hundred miles away is going to impact us. And also just the notion that San Francisco, uh, which is 
you know, south of here, that this crunch is just like crunching Seattle and Portland, which are the two. It's coming from both directions. Yeah, two yeah. hottest housing markets in the country and have been for some time now. Uh, back to, to politics here. Um, you know that at the outset, after 26 years, State Senator Pam Roach, she is calling it quits, though she is not leaving politics. She actually was elected this fall to the Pierce County Council. So that's actually a full-time job. And by law, she can't hold both positions. So the longest serving female senator uh, and one of the most controversial uh, will no longer be a fixture uh, at the state capitol. What do you make of her leaving? You you and I have both interviewed her a number of times. Like 500 I mean, times, yeah. yes. <laughs> Are you going to miss her? And how's it going to change Olympia? So first of all, you should know that I get a huge kick out of State Senator Pam Roach. You know, first of all is is the fact that, you know, she doesn't love many things that government does, but she spent most of her career <laughs> in politics. I mean, she goes from one job to the next to the next. You do remember she was an aide um, to uh, County Councilman Kent Pullen yeah, for the yeah. King County Council. Uh, gotta say, she's always been good news copy, like frighteningly good. Uh, and she's always been just a tad rough on her colleagues. Uh, I will read something from her past. Uh, you might remember, uh, I'll just read this, that State Senator Pam Roach was banned from the Senate Republican Caucus after her colleagues, in other words, her Republican colleagues, told her that she has repeatedly mistreated staff and should get, get this, get counseling to manage her anger. So, oh my gosh, she can't get along with her own fellow GOP senators. I don't know if you remember the other one with, you remember the flower incident? Of course, yeah. Who, who, who like forgets the, the flower incident? Ever. It's maybe the most famous. <laughs> um, somebody moved the flowers from her Senate desk. And she, on the floor of the Senate. On the floor yeah. of the Senate. Yeah. And she had a cow and just was incensed. And she was going to find out who did it. And then she was going to take action. But here's my favorite Pam Roach memory. I cannot get through this without telling you this. So, so in 2001, she was running for the King County Council. She lost to Julia Patterson. But this is kind of a fun story. So Julia Patterson had inherited some undeveloped land. And it had an abandoned trailer on it. Some, some transients sneaked in and began cooking meth. But Pam Roach turned this into Julia Patterson was on the land cooking meth. So I remember the Seattle Times editorial board that we did. So both candidates were in and they're sitting there and they're answering our pretty tough questions. This was so funny. So every time Julia Patterson would answer one of our questions, you know, Pam Roach would sit there and she had this um, headline from the South County Journal that talked about Julia Patterson's meth lab, essentially. <laughs> and she'd crack, crack the paper so that, and, and present the headline around the room. So everyone, while Julia Patterson was talking, everyone could see this headline about Julia Patterson's <laughs> meth lab that wasn't actually Julia Patterson's meth lab, but okay. Uh, plus side of Pam, we've had we've had some fun to hear. She, you know, she's worked on and passed a lot of bills. There, you know, public safety, open government, defense of the Second Amendment. So for me personally, I always sort of got along with her. You know, and even when I'd be writing stories about the flowers or the Julia Patterson non-meth lab, uh, she stayed game. She never really just flipped out at me like like she apparently 
had issues with her colleagues and her yeah, staff. Yeah, I mean, I, I she was always fun to interview. I interviewed her just dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the years. Um, always a great quote. Always kind of uh, looking for the fight and not scared of the fight. And as a journalist, you love those kind of people um, because they're willing to talk and they're willing to say things. She was a true renegade in Olympia. Uh, really kind of kind of a female Trump in a lot of ways before Trumpism really, really kind of, you know, came of age this year. She has long been uh, a kind of iconoclast, anti-establishment, populist Republican, not a business Republican, um, hated as much, in fact, more by her own party than by the Democrats. Um, doesn't fit perfectly into an ideological kind That's of matrix. Yeah. So she's Trump that way. And, and you know, she's going to be, she's going to be missed for, for, for the champion uh, kind of a, the working class, I would say. She has a partner down there in this, Don Benton, who is also retiring. He's a state senator from Vancouver. Quieter and, legislature, I can see yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he actually, uh, he's so Trumpian that he was co-chair of the Trump campaign. I mean, he literally has been on board that. And these are two that, again, they cross party lines. Um, they kind of pulled a coup a couple of years ago, sided with re Democrats, and she became president pro tem of the Senate oh, yeah, uh, because of that. Um, it's it's going to be a different legislature down there. I can't think of any other, certainly not in the Senate, sort of these populist firebrands, um, anti-government, anti-tax, kind of working class champions. You know, they were they were the most aggressive supporters of Imanism which is a real tax cut populist movement. Um, no one in the state Senate to me approaches uh, Roach and Benton. So they, they will be, um, they'll that be missed by of. that wing. Yeah, Someone that, may emerge, yeah. but they will be missed by, by that wing. They will not have that voice uh, in Olympia. So just one more thing about uh, her new life. And that is on the Pierce County Council, she will be earning maybe, I didn't do the math exactly, but something like double or triple her Senate salary. Uh, once she joins the Pierce County Council. And is there a chance maybe that professional professionalizes some of the conduct? It's it's going to be interesting what happens in Pierce County. It's a I think it's seven uh, Pierce County Council members um, at most nine, but I'm pretty sure it's seven. She's going to I mean, it was kind of hard enough to kind of manage Pam Roach, who talked about a little bit in a in a legislature with what, 49 state senators. It's be pretty interesting how how she gets along or doesn't get along in a much, much smaller legislative situation where her her voice, her style, her kind of iconoclastic firebrandness is going to be amplified, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I ten times. I think we'll times. keep hearing from Pam Roach. Yeah, well, That's yeah, what I think. Absolutely. Okay, CR, it is that time again as the year ends. We got to take a few minutes to highlight our picks for the biggest political winners and losers of 2016. I love I, these. I love these. these. Yeah. You can't get enough. You got to do it at the end of the year. You got to do it. <laughs> so my picks are, and um, I said this the other day on KUOW, and may I take a moment to say you were one mighty fine host of uh, The Week in Review That was there. fun. I was filling great, in great that day. Great, job. You were great. Uh, I think the Republicans, these are my winners, the Republicans in our state who stood up to Donald Trump early and often, they really distinguished themselves in this way. They gained credibility 
for all time. I mean, you know, it's not all about 2016, if you can believe that. So it's very unusual for so many people to not support and to publicly say this, that they don't love uh, the person at the top of the party's ticket, the presidential you, person. You think that will that will redound to their benefit in the future? Yeah, I think that's what it's all about. I think it's about long-term credibility. And I want to call out some names here for the Republican Party. I want to mention Chris Vance, gained credibility. Rob McKenna, Slade Gorton, Dan Evans, and finally, and as you recall a little bit belatedly, Bill Bryant, who ran for governor. They put country ahead of party. You gotta, you gotta note that. Uh, that's winning conduct. To me, that's winning 2016 right there. So my losers, uh, this has to be what I say here, uh, Seattle City Council and its credibility. You know, this is the year where the super lefties on the council let it all hang out. You would expect that from council member Mike O'Brien. You might expect that from Shama Sawant. Uh, but, you know, what happened is we got a lot of new newbies on the council, and they're very left. They're trying to outleft one another. The best example I have of that was the homeless legislation that was literally handed to them uh, by the Columbia Legal Services and the ACLU. And these folks just, hey, that's a great idea. This is the, the legislation. They wrote it. They wrote it, and they pushed it, and it allowed camping and, in a, among other things, allowed camping in parks and parking strips. And to me, that was just maybe just a little bit too far left. I felt that they embarrassed uh, themselves and sometimes the rest of us. So here, here's my winner for 2016, Dow Constantine, the King County Executive. He also serves as the chair of the board of Sound Transit, and this is why he makes my list. Um, he was the most vocal supporter of that $54 billion Sound Transit light rail extension, which was a huge, huge lift. And voters approved it, and actually not even close. What, it won by eight points, something like that. He gets huge credit. you got to give it to him. That's a big political win. And more than any other face, Dow Constantine is associated with sound transit and light rail. He also was just honored as the 2016 Public Official of the Year by Governing Magazine. That's a national, that's a national publication, a national honor. That's a pretty big deal. Um, goes to his strength in governing, streamlining uh, processes, bureaucracies, all the rest. He's not as flashy as a lot of politicians. He's kind of a quiet guy sometimes, you know. He's, he's, a, he's a quieter guy, uh, but he is racking up some impressive wins, uh, and he, I believe, will have a solid record to run as governor one day, and that could be as soon as 2020. I mean, you know, typically governors, other than Dan Evans, they've all stepped down after two terms if they've been elected to two terms. So let's say Inslee decides to retire in 2020. I think Dow Constantine is, is first up for that position. I think he's 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 in a great launching pad. King County Executive has produced executive several Executive is always pretty good. But can I offer just a couple of other possibilities? Sure. Uh, Democratic Congressman Derek Kilmer and uh, Democratic State Attorney General Bob Ferguson. Both are possibilities. And I don't know about you, but I would not be surprised to see uh, former State Attorney General Rob McKenna back there for the Republicans. He denies it all the time you ask him. But I just, I just, I just think he's becoming like the 
the spokesman for the Republicans, in addition to the more He's, official spokesperson, Susan Hutchison. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah. I think, well, quickly on McKenna, I, I, I think he's, yeah, don't count him out. He still is kind of involved in politics. I mean, you and I are with him a lot in the radio. He still kind of wants to be yeah, a pundit. He still yes. kind of writes um, little blogs and dispatches about, about what's happening in the state. So he's he's not done with politics uh, pretty clearly, even though he's he's in private practice as a lawyer right now. He's still young. And listen, this year, polling showed that among all the Republicans, he had the best chance against Inslee. Now, he chose, obviously, not to get into it. So he's still highly regarded. Now, it's tricky. Another four years, he will have been out of it. I think that's partly why he stays on the radio and other things. But you, 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 you do risk something if you stay out of it too long. On the Democratic side, I think you're right. I mean, listen, listen. if, if Jay Inslee does retire, it's the most you know coveted position, really, probably one of the most in, in Washington. And it would have the advantage of being an open position, which and we just, rarely have, you'll right? have a ton of You'll have a ton of Democrats jumping in. I, I I do think Dow Constantine will be right up there. But yeah, I mean, Bob Ferguson clearly probably wants it. Derek Kilmer, congressman from down in, in Tacoma area, he wants it. They'll, it'll, it'll be a tight, tight race with a lot of people bumping into each other. That is for sure. My loser, let me get to that too. Tim Eyman, you know, he foisted himself, and this relates to the sound transit issue that, that Dow Constantine is the winner on. He foisted himself into that debate. You know, Tim Eyman wrote the voters' pamphlet statement against that $54 billion measure. He was a public uh, crusader to turn down light rail, a real visible opponent of that. Um, and even he, the champion of, of, of anti-government, anti-tax, couldn't bring that thing down. Um, many thought it, it, it was too big and was going to kind of fall in its own weight, but even Ima couldn't bring it down. He also failed to make the ballot this year with another initiative. Oh, my gosh, a year without an Ima initiative. That's a rare occurrence. Um, he typically has made the ballot. It's not the first time he's missed, but but it's it's he more often than not gets to the ballot. This would have been a reprise of basically the $30 car tab tax initiative that made him famous You know, 15 years ago. He was trying to kind of get that back on the ballot because that tax has crept up even since that initiative was passed. So that was another loss for him. And finally, the noose has tightened around Tim Iman this, this, this year uh, in terms of investigation. You know, the, the attorney general's office is in, is in full investigation mode. They're looking into whether he mishandled funds from different initiatives in the past, whether he misled voters about how that money was being used and kind of transferred it from one account to another. There's also an allegation that he used some of that money for private purposes. So he was almost going to be held in contempt by the AG for not turning over his tax returns as part of that investigation. He finally did did release those. It's not over. We haven't heard from the AG. But listen, it, it doesn't look great. Who knows where that'll come out. But it's not been a good year for Tim Iman. I don't count him out. This guy has come back. He's had nine lives. I do expect to see him again, of course. But this was a real setback, 2016. So we're looking ahead now to our predictions. Are you ready for this? Nervous? Ready to go? I think I can handle it. I'll do I'll do my four quick ones. Seattle Mayor Ed Murray will be reelected in 2017. The replacement for outgoing Seattle City Council member Tim Burgess will be someone more moderate than the current group there. I didn't say conservative. I said more moderate. Uh, the legislature, as we indicated, will be more boring without Pam Roach. And it's going to rain all the way until March. <laughs> it's going to be cold and rainy, just as it has. This is a La Nina 
year. Just a quick follow-up on the Burgess thing. You say the replacement will be more moderate. Is that because— Not more moderate than Burgess, more right, moderate than the current— than the current Burgess. folks, you yeah, know, yeah. not another swant. Yeah, yeah. And you're basing that on what? That the, the business community will sort of get its act together and, and run someone? Seattle voters will start paying attention There'll to There'll be some backlash, be too. Some backlash to, to this group, which is backlash in and of itself. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good prediction. I just have two here, uh, one just small one, the safe injection sites we're talking about for heroin and others i think that's gonna gonna face a lot of headwinds um oh, yeah. you know oh, that's yeah. that's a you saw the pushback to the homeless the homeless problem and a lot of outraged communities and and you know homeowners kind of pushing back on that and and in some ways it's 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 about what you just talked about a reaction to kind of over leftism, over leftistism. I Do think it again. Do I think they'll be. I can't times. say it one more time. <laughs> Stop while you're ahead. Um, but I think safe injection sites have a have a have a tough road going forward. I think my biggest prediction for 2017 is that the legislature will once again kick the can down the road in this McCleary school funding plan. It's obviously a Supreme Court mandate. I think they will go part of the way this legislative session, but. They just are not going to be able to agree, I predict, on the full two and a half billion, which is basically what people think it's it will be needed in additional funds to complete this mandate. I think in response, the Supreme Court will once again slap them down, probably put some more sanctions on them, but that will largely be ignored. I think they will they will wait till the next biennium to do the completed things. We're talking about 2019. I just I just don't think there's the money, the will. Or, or the numbers, maybe. Or the numbers. Yeah, I mean, on each si- the, the, the math Senate is such of- that Republicans and Democrats basically control, each controls a house, and it just forces them to, um, to, to, to go medium and not go big. And so I would predict at the end of 2017, the McCleary Supreme Court school funding mandate will still be with us, even though this is the deadline year. And we're going to hold you to that. Exactly. We have long memories here. (laughs) Uh, CR, this is our last podcast of 2016. We're going to take a break for a few months, but we'll be back later in the spring with more great analysis from the analysts. He's CR Douglas. I'm Joni Balter. And we are the analysts. For more stories on politics, please visit us on our website at kcts9.org. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. To hear more podcasts from KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.